Hello and welcome to another episode of One More Round. I've returned from my holidays and I'd just like to thank Chris for the stellar job he did for filling in for me while I was away. So thank you, Chris. No problem. <laughs> so I'm joined today by Chris and Stephen. Unfortunately, Gary was unable to join us this evening as he is sick. We hope you're feeling better and can join us next week, Gary. I trust the two of you are keeping well this Thursday anyway? Yeah, no complaints, no complaints. That's good, that's good. Um, we might as well jump straight into it and I'll ask you this week's question now. So um, as we've rolled into the month of September and we all know the Rugby World Cup is starting this month, so I've decided to look back through the Rugby World Cup archives and the questions over the next two months will all be Rugby World Cup related. So this week's question is, Mark Willis holds the record for the most tries in a Rugby World Cup game when New Zealand played Japan in 1995. My question is, how many did he score? You don't want to answer now, right? No, I just, yeah, no, I don't want the answer now. I just thought, cool. I, thought I, I thought I hit something there. Anyway, so having a look at the football from last weekend, the Premier League recap from last weekend. So, uh, Chris, do you want to start us off there by talking us through the Newcastle v Arsenal game? Yeah, no problem. Um, similar Arsenal to we're used to. Lots of the ball didn't really create a hell of a lot. Um, the game was kind of turned on its head after 16 minutes when Mitrovic got a straight red card. Um, stupid challenge, really. He deserved the red. Um, it's, it's his third game for Newcastle. And it's the third time he's picked up a card. It lasted slightly longer than the 16 seconds on his debut, but <laughs> he looks like a decent player. He really needs to work on that temper. Yeah, there were signs of it, wasn't there? He he's got all the attributes they need. Like people are gonna be playing a fair bit of counter attack and football, so they need someone who's big and strong and can hold the ball up. And he's very good at doing that. It's just a case of whether he can stay on the pitch long enough to do it. <laughs> so, um, so all Arsenal possession as you'd expect. Um, didn't look great with Walcott. He wasted them pretty. Badly. Bellerin should have had a penalty actually early on. Uh, Toivonen just took him down from behind and in our way of play on good job ref <laughs> but uh, we'll get on to his colleagues later on <laughs> so, into the second half and the goal was pretty fortuitous um, the ox down the right hand side kind of a, a cross come shot and it takes a pretty big deflection off Coluccini and goes in past Tim Krill it was Harsh on Newcastle because they defended quite well, considering the man advantage. Um, after that, there was no real way back. They tried to play on the counter, but they weren't as effective as they were the week previous against United. So, all in all, I think Arsenal deserved the victory anyway? Um, if it was based on possession, then yes. <laughs> I'm not sure that they would have scored if it wasn't for the deflection. They just... They just seemed short of ideas up front and the Walcott thing really didn't work. You could say they lacked a striker. 
<laughs> maybe um, maybe Wenger will be sweating with the news that Welbeck's going to be out a little bit longer. Maybe, maybe. Um, a game that didn't lack goals, though, was Aston Villa against Sunderland. So 2-2 in this game. Stephen, you want to talk us through that one? Yeah, no problem. Um, Sunderland got a very early goal. A silly foul by a Mavi on the edge of the box. And Villa just with a beautiful strike from 25 yards. Um, but Aston Villa equalised within three minutes. Just a steep, like Lee Catterall, I can't understand A, why he's playing football. But apart from that, just the, the ball comes in the box, it gets deflected up in the air, and he just climbs on, I think it was Gusted or Sinclair, I think it was Sinclair, just climbs on him. The rest gives us a foul, and then he reacts like, it just, it's stupidity, it's sheer stupidity. But anyway, the penalty, he fails Sinclair, Sinclair scored the penalty, and then equal, or then put them 2-1 up, just for the, just for half time, um, brilliant counter-attack from Aston Villa. Gway on the, on the left-hand side, plays the ball to Mavi, first time ball into Sinclair, and he has an empty net. Villa looked good, but then, um, Sutherland on the counter-attack, Again, um, Sanchez lost the ball in midfield. I think Oli Teuvenen came on at halftime for his debut. He played the ball to, to Lons. Lons turned inside Clark, then takes a shot. Um, then Richard had a pretty bad miss. Actually, it wasn't a pretty bad miss, it was a terrible miss. Villa countered. <laughs> the ball went to Sinclair. He squared the ball across. He's two yards out, and he somehow overruns the ball and clears it with his the left side of his leg and it goes straight to the keeper. It, it's I seem to get all the bad misses. I think I had Brekino two weeks ago. I had the Gapue header last week and this one is it's it's probably worse because well he's a defender so I know he probably earns a small bit of a reprieve for that but he should have scored. And you have a miss in competition all on your own. Yeah, I, I just, whatever happens, I, I seem to get the games where I have no goals and a lot of, of, of open goal misses. Um, Westwood had a chance about 10 minutes to go for Villa. Um, Mavi with a brilliant run, crossed the ball over to Gishted, chested down to, and 15 yards out. Westwood has the entire goal to aim at, hit it straight at Van at, at Um And then, to add insult to literal injury, Phil had a late penalty claim disallowed, and Tim Sherwood I, I tried to back heel a water bottle and pull his hamstring, <laughs> which, which was absolutely brilliant. Um, Good luck to see, aren't they? Yeah, I read nothing this, and apparently he, he's never had a hamstring injury is in his entire footballing career, but he's now had one as the Aston Villa manager. <laughs> poor guy, poor guy. Do you think, is it too early in the season to say that this was two teams that will be battling relegation? I don't think it is. I think both of them will be from 14 downwards. Um, I think Sunderland, after shocking first two games, they look like two draws. They brought O'Shea back in. They're still conceding goals, but they don't look a mess at the back. Like The first Villa goal was, was a silly individual mistake, and the second was a very quick counter-attack. They didn't look as though they were kind of at sixes and sevens at the back, but I, I still see them struggling. Yeah, fair point, fair point. Um, moving on to 
one of the teams that I tipped Bournemouth. God, I love Bournemouth, they do. Chris, do you want to talk us through their game with Leicester, a one-all draw? Yeah, they, they were very impressive, in fairness. Um, I can see why you liked them. Uh, they were comfortable on the ball and they created chances. They're, they're going to be tough to beat at home. Their goal came through Callum Wilson. It was a cracking overhead attempt from him. It's his, uh, his fourth goal in his last two games now. Fancy goal, some would say. Yeah, he, he just took it very well. Um, it'd be interesting to see if he can keep the run going and maybe be the Charlie Austin of this season. If you can, they'll have a good chance of staying up. Yeah, and what do you think of Leicester? Yeah, Leicester were good. They impressed me in a different way uh, in this game. They they didn't as much of the ball or have it their own way like they have in previous weeks, but they battled really hard and they kept going right until the end. Um, the goal came from a penalty, but it was, it was all Jamie Vardy's work. He picked up the ball on halfway and he just started beating defenders into the box and passed another player and he was taken down it was penalty he picked himself up to take it himself and it wasn't the clear the greatest of penalty but he hit it hard enough and found the back of the net yeah no very good very good um, I want to talk to this is a game that this one this one might hurt you Chris but can you talk us through what happened in the Liverpool and West Ham game yeah, I've uh, I've calmed down a little bit on this one. Uh, I had a good rant with Gary um, after the match. Um, I don't know where I suppose we begin after three minutes. Uh, Lanzini just kind of wandered into the box to tap home into it. What I'd say was an open goal. Mignolet with a half-hearted scramble at the, the last second, but he was nowhere near it. And that pretty much set the tone for the game. Lovren was was back to his best. <laughs> yes, he was. What what he was doing about the for the second goal, I don't know. But slightly before that, he uh, he decided to go on a run into midfield and it, try a couple of step overs. Dribble this mazy dribble that he tried to go on. Oh, it was fantastic. Um, it it set the counter up perfectly for West Ham. I don't think they'd have got away without him. Um, from that, he had several chances to clear the ball. He. He was lucky uh, Lanzini fell over. He didn't put it out. He kept it in play for going for a corner. Um, then he just seemed to kind of roll it and stop. <laughs> the only so, way to describe it. Lanzini looked a little bit confused. It was his first game in the Premiership. I thought, thought he thought someone was having a laugh or something. But eventually he decided he was going to pick the ball up and head into the box. From there we had... Another couple of chances to clear, uh, which we decided not to take. <laughs> um, Joe Gomez was partially to blame, although Lovren thankfully uh, spared his blushes, but what he'd done previously. Uh, in fairness to Noble, then, it was, a, it was a very good finish, but we were just shambolic at the back. Um, from there, West Ham were, were happy to kind of sit back and let us have the ball. We didn't. We didn't trouble. We didn't look like doing anything. Our only shot on target in the match was a an effort by Lovren himself from about thirty yards out. Is um, known for these thirty yard screamers. No, well, not not to my knowledge. Um, maybe <laughs> that's why we paid twenty million from. Um, Coutinho picked up a booking in the first half um, because 
fantastic Kevin Friend didn't give him a free kick when he was fouled so then into the second half and Coutinho tries to pull out of a challenge West Ham player goes over him fantastic Kevin Friend to the rescue pulls out a second yellow absolutely ridiculous um, it was very similar actually to a challenge that Alexi Sanchez made in the Arsenal game just you could see the player trying to pull out and the attacker kind of goes over his body the, the ref got it spot on the Arsenal game it was a, a free kick but nothing more but friend wanted his, his moment in the limelight to see throughout the game uh, so he sent Coutinho off for a second bookable offence and wasn't too long before he was in the headli- headlines again sending off Nolan this time for the West Ham player being felled <laughs> it seems he wanted his uh, 15 minutes of fame a bit, a bit more as well I don't know, I think he, he saw what Kalina did and he thought he might get on the Pro Ev cover. I know it's coming out soon. <laughs> um I really wish we could we could be told if there's any punishment for referees. I say like send them to the worst ground in England and just make them play there, be there for the rest of the season. A wet wind windy Wednesday night in Stoke. Yeah, not in the premiership. I wouldn't even do that to Stoke. They had their own troubles with referees at the weekend. <laughs> yes, they did. So I, I think the only other thing left for me to say is that uh, West Ham picked up their first win at Anfield in over 50 years. And Liverpool have a lot of work to do in the international break. Mm, so you could say it's rare for West Ham to win at Anfield. And what you could also say is rare is Jose Mourinho losing at home. So uh, Stephen, do you want to talk us through this game? Sure. Um, I think... It- it has been coming. I think every time Mourinho comes up against a manager whose name is P, he tends to lose. I think his last seven have been, whether it be Pulis or Potocino or Pardew, twice. Um, I think he's lucky that his next, his next, the next time he plays a manager with a P isn't until November. Ah, so Chelsea might have a, a decent chance of picking up some wins over the next few weeks. Then maybe um, they. I, I don't think. He, as much as Mourinho will try and argue, I don't think he can argue that much. I think Crystal Palace played a very good game. I think they always knew they were going to be under pressure being in the Stamford Bridge, but they said it perfectly. Their their front four is, is just sheer pace. Um, any chance they got to attack Chelsea, they did, and, and, and they did it very quickly and got at Zuma and Cahill. Um, first half, there weren't too many chances. Um, Sacco and Kabai... Both had one. Uh, Kabai probably should have scored. Ball came across, 15 yards out of broke to him, and he hit it straight at the keeper. Um, Chelsea had two chances before the first goal. Um, a break, Costa gets to get the ball about five yards in from the penalty area, takes a shot, keeper saves, it rebounds to Fabregas, keeper saves again, just looks out to break to Pedro, and I think with Scott Dan, I'm not sure, just gets there in time, takes it off his toe and, and Palace clear their lines. Um, and then Cale had a header cleared off the line. But the defender, it was reasonably comfortable. And then second half, they brought on Balassi, who was, I think his, his father passed away last week. So he didn't play in the Carling Cup and was on the bench today. But he, he came on the second half and, and played super, but he was involved in a number of chances in both the Palace goals. Um, the first one was scored by Sacco. Um, ball in from Blassi on the left towards Sacco. He takes a shot, a very good sliding tackle by Azpilicueta. I think he's unlucky that the ball breaks straight back to Sacco 
and with a second shot he just blasts past Courtois from 12 yards um, they have a chance to make it 2-0 when Sacco squares the ball to Balassi again and it just he, he seems to just mistime the ball it, it came on quickly but he should have made it 2-0 and it looked like they were going to rule that chance when four minutes later Chelsea broke down the right hand side Pedro with a superb cross um, and Falco with a great diving header like he dives pretty much at the defender's feet and risks a serious injury but gets to the ball first scores his first goal for Chelsea and I think you think at that time that Chelsea should go on and make it 2-1 but with Palace on the counter attack again Ball on the left-hand side, Blasty crosses it in, Sacco knocks it down, and Ward with the second diving header of the game. Takes all three points for Palace. And a Rare, beautiful sight, the diving header. It is. It, it's a lovely thing. And to see two in, in three minutes was fantastic, especially when the second one was going in past past Courtois. But um, like they were, they've earned it. Like Chelsea had more possession, but it was a perfect counter-attacking display. I think Pardew, for all the jokes that we've made, he really is doing a superb job there. Was it a, was it would it be as close to a perfect away performance as we've seen this season? Well, there's, there's been a lot. I think the stat is there's only nine home wins in the first four weekends of the season, so there's a lot of away wins. Um, I think the best one was probably going to be Manchester United against Swansea, apart from five minutes. But I think we'll talk about that later on. <laughs> We will. Um, yeah, and he said Falco got his first goal. Will he get many this season? Will he get 10, 15? He looked sharp, but I, it depends on how much, how much game time he gets. Like, it will be Diego Costa. I don't think they're going to play two of them up top. I think he likes having the three behind one strike, one central striker. So if he gets game time and he's, he's had a full pre-season, like, he's... Has the capability of scoring 20 goals if he gets back from that injury. But all last season, he looked slightly off pace. Now, whether it be just for playing in a team who weren't very attacking, like it looks like Manchester United don't create many chances anymore. And maybe he's just, he was the person who himself and Di Maria were the two victims of a team who don't create a lot of goals. And maybe with Ramirez or with um, Azard behind him, that maybe with a team who gives him more chances behind defenders rather than having two banks of four in front of him, he'll score more goals. Maybe. A team uh, who haven't had a problem scoring goals this season is uh, Man City. So City against Watford ended 2-0. Stephen Jonah talks through that one as well. Yeah, it was exactly as predicted. Um, maybe not as many goals. I think we had two 3-0s and two 4-0s in our predictions and we weren't too far off. And to be honest, it probably should have been three or four. Um, it was almost like a training match. It was just City attack, City attack. Watford with the odd little counter-attack. Um, they had a decent chance in the second half and the ball broke to Anya the substitute, but he took too long when the defender came across and blocked it. Um, Sterling probably should have scored in the first half. He was played through on the left-hand side, had a brilliant low shot, and Julio Gomez saves it. I think it was with his elbow, but however he saved it, just turned it around the corner, around the post. But... Two minutes in the second half, Pellegrini made a tactical switch. He moved Sterling in from the right-hand side, played central within two minutes. He had scored across from Sanya, and I don't know what happened to Watford. Maybe they just hadn't got their marking done because of the switch. But Sterling was left in about three or four yards of space and just tapped the pass keeper. Wasn't going to miss it there. Sorry, say again? 
he wasn't going to miss him there. No, exactly. Like he's he's been from the games I've seen so far this season, he looks very sharp. He just hasn't got that goal. I think in a way the the two week break now doesn't help him because he was just starting to to get involved in that team. But it might be good for England. Um. Then ten minutes later, free kick for Man City. Torre hits into the wall, breaks to the right hand side. Fernandinho picks it up, one two with Silva, and then he scores a similar finish to the goal against Chelsea. After that, it was pretty comfortable. Torre should have made it three 0 with a, a lovely, the way he he has his own kind of technique where he just places the shots. He doesn't blast them, but he had on his left left hand side, just curls it off the post and very comfortable for City. Could have been three or four, but they'd be happy with three points. Standard win. Um, Chris, you alluded to Stoke and having a few red cards earlier. Do you want to talk us through the Stoke and West Brom game? Yeah, no problem. Um, Starting to see a bit of a pattern here with uh, my matches. I saw the fourth and fifth red cards of my (laughs) matches at the weekend. Um, So the first one was uh, Afalai, who was sent given a straight red card after 25 minutes. Um, not a red card for me. Um, he did, he did slap Gardner, but Gardner slapped him first. Um, yeah, if 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 he's getting sent off, should Gardner not be sent off as well? I just think like Michael Oliver. I know he's a, a man you're very uh, in favour of. Uh, I just think he could have shown some cop on, like give the two of them a yellow card. It was early in the game. No need to make yourself stand out. Give the two of them a warning. Did Gardner even that. get a yellow card? No, he didn't. No. Nothing for Gardner, straight red for Affleck. Exactly. Like in, in rugby, referee has a quick chat and then just cop on, play the game. There's no need for a man to be sent off for that. It wasn't violent conduct. It was just stupid. Yeah, the whole rule where if, if, if the hand goes forward the face of the red card, it's only be something that's actually violent. A slap is not going to hurt anybody. Yeah. Um, and the other one I'm I'm not sure about. Uh, it was six minutes later, Charlie Adam got a, a straight red card for a stamp. And um, this one was actually given by the linesman, not Oliver. Um, I think it's very harsh. To, uh, to Oliver's defence, he didn't actually see this one at all. Um, great referee. His, his assistants are there for a reason, you know. He, he has to be able to trust them. Uh, I think he should get some extra assistance. He's another awful referee. <laughs> but yeah, this Adam one... I can see why he went. Like he does step down. I'm not sure he meant it. Maybe he did. Um, yeah. So I, I suppose I don't have no arguments with this one. It's really about your personal opinion. I've seen it a few times now, and I'm still not sure if he meant it or not. Um, like I said, he does have previous, but usually that's against. And Gareth Bale specifically. Yeah. Um, so at this point, then Stoke down to nine men, and. Pulis actually made a very smart change. He withdrew Jakob, the holding midfielder, and he brought on Ricky Lambert to uh, to partner Rondon. And it was this uh, this change that actually led to the only goal of the game. Um, Ricky Lambert picking up the ball, kind of edge of the penalty area on the right-hand side. Um, Stoke defenders back off. They, I suppose they kind of had to. They were down to nine. They could, couldn't really afford to rush up. So they gave him the space and he put in a fantastic cross and Rondon finished very well. It was a nice header. Um, and that was pretty much it. Um, West Brom saw the game out and Pulis got a, a win and a standing ovation on his return to Stoke. 
very good. Very good. Um, Stephen, I know you've been looking forward to telling us about this Spurs and Everton game. Yep, yeah, my weekly nil all game this week happens to be Spurs Everton. Um, Spurs haven't really started this season. They've been very reluctant to score goals for whatever reason. Kane looked off off form and it didn't really change this game. Then they had a lot of possession and a lot of chances. Like I'd say Howard probably man of the match, uh, made some superb saves. Although a bit liked his game in the World Cup for the USA, made lots of saves, but there was nothing incredibly difficult. He made standard saves um, sadly Bentley and Mason look, look the pick of the bunch for Spurs in this one they've, they've been very good all season Mason looks like he's, he's going to step up from last season um, Kyle Walker still looks though he has lapses of concentration he had a couple of them against Man United in the opening day and one here where just just took his eye off the ball gave the ball basically clearly from 20 yards out clearly hit the shot and it's a good save Um the big chance of the game was probably Harry Kane's. Mason put him through. There was a counter-attack. 40, um, Kane basically had 40 yards to run at Tim Howard and just didn't look remotely like scoring. He kind of waited and waited and waited. A bit like Rooney last week against um, Newcastle. Um, and just, in the end, just hit a straight to the keeper. Is he lacking confidence? I don't know if... if like, there's no reason for lacking confidence. I just, I think it's just the sharpness. I think, for whatever reason, normally with Wayne Rooney, it just comes from game time. Maybe Harry Kane is is from this from the same mold that he needs a, a run of games. I think last season he played a lot of Europa League, and that's where he got his form in. Maybe it's just a matter of he needs to get back up, up the pace, or maybe he's just a reason wonder. I'm not too sure, but I, I must admit I'm a little bit grateful my night didn't spend a lot of money on, on buying them as they were rumoured to, to be at the start of the season. Very true. I suppose uh, one, one thing of note for that was uh, what looked a very nasty injury to Tom Cleverley. Um, completely accidental. Defender slides in, his leg gets trapped. It looks as though his ankle ligaments went or snapped at the same time. Um, it sounds as though it's only a six, eight weeks injury, so it's not too bad, but um, that's probably the biggest event of that game. <laughs> So hopefully you won't have a nil all to discuss anytime soon. Um, It'll fall to me again, don't worry. It probably will. Um, what we We've organised for that to be the case. Yeah, well, that's what we're planning. <laughs> um, what we do want to talk about then now is uh, United v Swansea. Can you uh, tell us about this one? Yep, as Chris had to relive his Liverpool anger, I'll, I'll relive my Manchester United anger. Yes, um, yeah, it's it's something they've been doing all season. They've been dominating possession, um, not creating many chances from it. And all I was going to take is a team who are in form, who have players who can punish mistakes and who can actually score goals. And my line of defence was going to come undone. Like we conceded one goal in the first five games, and stats looked good. But I think now, once you once you, you see what happens when you get an in form big striker like Gomez up against Daly Blind and he, he struggled to be honest for the first time this season um, in the first half Gomez had a chance the ball was played into him but 15 yards out two defenders go to him one of them Blind and he just turns inside and the defenders are gone um, hits a shot on the outside of his, of his right foot past Romero clips the outside of the post and you know they were lucky to go in at nil all um, second half Shaw was hacked on the left hand side clipped across in poor defending 20 
two defenders kind of go towards the go towards the cross, but no one's intercepts it. Man drifts in the back post and just nips in in front of of Williams for the first goal. Man is fifty. A nice bit of skill from Rooney to uh, dummy it. Was it skill or did he just miss the ball? <laughs> it's hard to tell with his form this season. Um, and at that stage, you know, it looked as though they were going to do a very like they had possession in the first half and they were reasonably comfortable. But as soon as Swansea started breaking the second half, being a goal down, they went for it. Um, just after after the hour mark, Swansea equalised with IU a sloppy pass in the centre midfield of Man United. Ball drops to Ashley Williams. He plays it to Gilfie Stigerson on the right hand side. Crosses in. The United defence is nowhere. Are you with a very good header down low? Romero maybe could have saved it, but I think it's being a bit harsh. But if I'm being harsh on him there, I'm definitely not being harsh for the second goal. And five minutes later, again on the right hand side, I use on the right hand side, plays a beautiful ball outside of his left foot, about 30 yards around the United defence. Gomi snips in. He's about 10 yards out at the keeper's near post and just rolls it past Romero. Romero just, he doesn't, I think it's it's obvious to compare him to De Gea, but De Gea would have saved it with just better technique. De Gea would have gone with his feet and, and saved the ball. Romero tried to dive down with his hand to kind of to save, and by the time he's, his hand is down there, the ball's already passed him in the back of the net. Um, after that, you know, didn't really create too many chances. Swansea completely deserve the win and they jump ahead of Man United in fourth yep that's uh, that about sums up that game I don't have to relive that anymore anyway um, last game of the weekend we'll talk about there Chris you seem to have all the red cards you want to talk to Southampton against Norwich yeah the last red card of the weekend for me um, Southampton started very well in fairness um, they were in control of the game Whittaker picked up a, a, a silly yellow card for uh, stopping my target from taking an early throw in, like I don't know what he was thinking. He just kind of put, he was climbing all over the back of target, just stopping him to take the throw in. It was a definite yellow card, and and from then he he knows he's got to be careful. Um, and well, it was in the space of four minutes he picked up his second yellow card. Um, Southampton playing a ball in behind for Tadic around about the halfway line. Uh, Whitaker clearly pulling him back, clear to the referee. Um, not only did he pull him back, but I think the the guys in Monday Night Football mentioned it. He pulled him back and stopped running, so it was even more obvious. Um, no option for the referee but to to give him a yellow and send him off. And Tadic made plenty of it, threw himself to the ground. But in fairness, it was booking. Um, I don't think he needed to do that. It would have been a yellow anyway. But from then on. No complaints with this ref. No, not not on this case. It was <laughs> no. more the player. Um, if I was a manager, I'd be absolutely disgusted with him for that. Two yellows in the space of four minutes, and they were mindless bookings. Um, from there, Southampton continue, continued to dominate. Um, they got the goal just before halftime through Pele, his first of the season, but in fairness to Norwich, he was offside, and Here's where I'm going to give out about the officials again. It's on the <laughs> linesman's side. The Southampton player is the first one he sees, and he gets it wrong. We should give you a weekly section to complain <laughs> about the officials. I don't think we've got enough time for uh, what I've got to say about the officials, Glenn. In his defence for this one, it's maybe two, three inches. It's 
it's not three or four yards. Uh, it's the first person he sees. It's his job. Um, Norwich <laughs> are already down job, to ten men. They don't need uh, wrong decisions in the game. It always happens. <laughs> Sorry, if you make a mistake as an official, I'm going to point it out. Well. Nothing gets past our Chris. Uh, well, maybe a few things do, but I'll I'll pick a few points and then I'll make sure I make a really strong case on those ones. Yeah, very good. <laughs> so uh, from there, uh, Southampton just. They just control the game. Uh, it was a case of how many. Um, I wouldn't say they created a hell of a lot. Um, the second goal came through uh, Mane down the right-hand side and ball into the box. And it was actually a really nice finish from Tadic. Left all alone at the back post. Uh, he got his, his second of the game. Then shortly afterwards, uh, again, a ball in from the right-hand side. It was... I think it was James Rodriguez this time with the header, parried away by the keeper, but he didn't get it away from the goal, and Tadic was on hand to just tap into the empty net. Uh, he he was very lively, in fairness, Tadic. Um, not only did he play a huge part in the player getting sent off, he got himself a couple of goals and just looked very lively again. The problem with Tadic, I feel, is that he, he always seems to have either a really good game or he's really quiet yeah. in the game. He, it's consistency he needs now. Yeah, he did. He definitely does drift in and out. Like you can see, the quality is there. It's just a case of whether he can do it over like a, a stretch of games, like you say. See if he can go say ten games in good form or something like that instead of one game here and another one there. That seems to be the next challenge for him. All right. Yeah, definitely. I think for Mane as well, who looked good. Um, I know there was rumours of a, a move to United didn't materialise, but. They're out of the Europa League now. I think that's really going to help the team. Um, they got their second clean sheet in a row. And they'll have Wanyama now if they can get him back, get him in the right frame of, frame of mind. I think Kuman's only going to improve that team now that he doesn't have to worry about Thursday night football. <laughs> and then doesn't have to worry about Liverpool stealing more players for a few months. <laughs> well, not for a few months. Yeah, so... The transfer window has now closed, so it's, it's, it'll lead us on nicely now to discussing this transfer window. So, thanks very much for covering all those Premier League games. And what do you think of the Hayes situation? What do you make of that? It's a, it's a shambles that reflects really badly on both clubs, to be honest. From Manchester United's point of view, to have allowed it to go this late. I know they offered him a contract, he declined a new one. From their point of view, they're saying, well, if Real Madrid didn't put in a bid, but realistically, they've known for three months that Real Madrid were going to put in a bid. And they dillied and dallied. And while that was happening, they brought in Romero. They told Valdez he could go. He was rumoured to go to Besiktas. It didn't materialise. So now Manchester United have four goalkeepers, all of which, well, maybe not Sam Johnson, but you've got Valdez, you've got Romero, you've got De Gea, all in your squad. And it's just bad management, whether it be Ed Woodward, whether it be Louis Van Hal, I don't know. But from my point of view, you're left with too many goalkeepers and not enough positions in the squad. And for Real, it just looks as though they they bottled it in the end. Chris, who was at fault in this situation? United I'm not or Real? Sure. Um, They're both blaming sh- each other. Yeah, well, shortly after uh, the news broke on Sky Sports, they had a. Uh, their resident Spanish specialist in uh, Guillem Balaguer on. And he had said that Madrid admitted fault on their part. 
And then as as the day went on, there was Madrid releasing this ten point statement about how it was United's fault. Seems and so. United firing back. Recently, statements, isn't it? Yeah, um, I, I don't know. I suppose that the truth could lie somewhere in the middle. You could see why United would want to hold on to him, but then again, at the end of the season, they risk losing him for nothing. So I really don't know. Um, the rumours coming out of Spain is that uh, Rafa is actually quite happy with Navas, that he's started pretty well for them, and maybe that had something to do with it. Yeah, and apparently United now, apparently De Gea will sign a new contract with United, um, because I think if he wants to play for the Euros, or for Spain in the Euros next season, he has to play. Del Bosca has told him he has to play, so I think United can kind of say, sign a contract or we're not playing you. I'm not sure that would work. Um He's clearly the best keeper United have at the moment. Um, if they decided to drop him on principle and then they were out of the Champions League or out of the top four, uh, the fans certainly wouldn't be happy. No, they wouldn't, but he'd have to want to play as well. I think what makes sense all around is that he signs a brand new contract, he gets a pay raise, he plays all season, he, co- he makes the Spanish Euro 2016 squad. With the contract signed, my United have more leverage and the deal happens next year for roughly the same price. No, it wouldn't be roughly the same price. Surely it would be like forty million in a player of United's choice or something. If if they if they really if De Gea sign on for another five years. Unless the contract has a, a clause in it, a Real Madrid clause. Um possibly. Which is a it it's possible if um if that's really where he wants to go. You could put in that if 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 they come in with forty million or whatever, he can go. The worry is that this has this would have a negative effect on both players and both clubs. If Navas isn't happy that Real Madrid were basically happy to let him go, does his, his, does his form drop? If De Gea is unsettled, even if he gets back in the team, will he be confident like he was last season? Or will he, he look a little bit shaky in pre-season? Will that form continue? I think it, there's the potential for everything to work out and for both keepers to have good seasons, but there's also a huge potential for for Real Madrid in particular to have a massive problem because if Navas loses confidence and doesn't trust the club, like Manchester United do have backups in Valdez and Sergio Romero. Real Madrid don't have that depth. True, true. Well, well, well the interesting will be if United and Real Madrid draw each other in the quarterfinals of the Champions League or something. Hopefully the final. Hopefully the final. Um, so if the De Gea situation was the biggest transfer sag of the summer, well, the biggest transfer signing of the summer, the most expensive one, was De Bruyne joining City. Good signing for him? Stephen, what do you think? I would have said a month ago, yeah, I think it's the one position that their squad really needed an excellent player. I think Samar Nagy on the right-hand side has fits and starts. He can look brilliant and then he can have three poor games in a row. I'd have said Navas wasn't good enough with his end product, but so far this season he's been very good. So I think with Navas in form, De Bruyne has a chance to settle in over the next month. I think he scored tonight for Belgium, so he's he's in form already, but it might take him a few weeks to get going, and then they have an option. If they can play Sterling, they can play De Bruyne, they can play Silva, all in that three behind Aguero. They can move about like Pellegrini did it over the weekend. They just have lots of options, and every option seems to be on form and, and playing well right now. I think it's it's definitely City's title to lose. Is it looking ominous for everyone else, Chris? Yeah, it definitely is. I mean, 
City have 100% record and they've got Otamendi and De Bruyne have still to come into the side. Um, Aguero just finding his way back to fitness. If they can keep those players fit, um, it looks like it's theirs to lose. I mean, it's very early to be saying it. Uh, I did pick Chelsea to, to win the league at the start and I, I wouldn't rule them out so early but they really need to get a move on. City look very strong. Yeah. And if De Bruyne was the most expensive signing of the summer, what about Anthony Martial, the most expensive teenager ever? I don't know much about him. Um, apart from the the fact that he's got great pace and has only played a handful of games in France, from from what I heard, he only signed a new deal about six months ago, which is very strange. Um, if United really wanted him, um, I'm sure I think they could have got him cheaper rather than wait until the last minute. Um, Was it a 30, Thirty-six million up front, according to Sky, and well, some sources saying that could rise to fifty-seven. I mean, that just seems ridiculous for someone who's played what is it, fifty games in the league? Yeah, how that breaks down though, it's twenty-two up front, and then four three and a half million payments over four years. Everything after that is I think it's a five million euro if he's top scorer in the Premier League. Also, if he's Ballon d'Or. Yeah, he's five million if he's the golden boy, which is the, I think, under-21s World Player of the Year, and then 10 million if he's Ballon d'Or. So if he ends up winning all of those and we end up paying £58 million, it will be for the best player in the world. So I don't think if if if, if that ends up, I think every single Man United fan will be happy. But It would look like money well spent. Exactly. Um, yeah, Chelsea... Turns out they were a bit busy on the last day. They failed to get Marquinho from uh, from PSG. Yeah, what do you think of that, Chris? Um, I think it was just a, a panic buy, or a panic attempted buy. They realised they were getting over with stones. Um, they brought in a, a couple of young defenders, one they loaned straight back out, and then they got another young guy from France. Um, just Chelsea leaving it to the last minute. I mean, they clearly wanted cover in, in defence. They either wouldn't pay what Everton wanted or Everton just weren't prepared to sell and they left it far too late to try and pull off a deal like this. I mean, Marquinhos is at a big club in PSG. I would say on the same level as Chelsea, maybe even ahead of them over the last couple of European performances. So to get one of their their big players on the last day, it's just not going to happen. Yeah, it will take more than a day to get that deal through. Or it would it would take an insane amount of money, like like David Luiz money, maybe even more than that. True, true. Um, Stephen West Ham were busy on the last day of the season. What do you make of all their business? Um, I say they definitely strengthened. Whether or not it, it's hugely strengthened, I think Jelovic will have six, seven very good games, and then the rest he'll be distinctly average, whereas Touch will be just awful. Um, Song is a good player for them to have if he stays injury free. Antonio from Nottingham Forest, I don't know too much about. So, um, Victor Moses goes on his annual loan to a Premier League club. I think this is the third <laughs> one in a row. Um, I just, I'd feel from his point of view. I know going slightly off topic, but if you're a player playing for, well, well, not actually playing for Chelsea, but under on Chelsea's books, and for three years in a row they ship you out. I'd be very, very worried that they don't rate me at all, and 
signed a new contract this summer. He signed a four-year deal before he went out on loan. That's the point. I don't understand. Unless your motivation is money, I don't understand why he's still at Chelsea. I don't know why Chelsea would give him another four-year contract. I think it might be to do with having English players on their books. That's the only thing I can think of. That He's declared for Nigeria, though, isn't he? Nigeria, yeah. But then it makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. <laughs> that was the only thing, the only logic I could see that that he somehow qualified as English because he'd he'd grown up and played enough years in the youth systems. He did have the option, all right, but he chose Nigeria. I'd just like to go back to a player that Stephen mentioned there, Mikhail Antonio. Um, hadn't heard much about him before the move, but I've been looking up some of his games and. He really does look like a good player. He's he's a winger and he's got he's got pace and strength. He got sixteen goals last season for Forest. And if he can take that kind of form into the league, he's going to be some player for one. I'm actually looking forward to seeing him play now. Bit of a step up from the championship from to the Premiership, but if he can do it, it will be a good sign. Now. It was just the, the type of goals we scored. It was just very impressive. He was just picking, driving at defenders, taking them on, getting to the edge of the box, and then just unleashing these shots that were just flying into the bottom corner. And lots of different types of goals. Like he was plucking the ball out of the air like when long diagonals were played to him. He just really looks like one to watch. So then West Ham were busy, but Arsenal certainly had a lack of business business this summer. So uh, just Peter Cech got brought in. Steve, what do you think of that? At the time, as I started the season, we talked about how that one signing could be enough to to jump Arsenal from third in the league to potentially title contenders. I think we were a bit optimistic. I think we'd forgotten how Arsenal play football. I think they they still need a striker in the same way that Manchester United need a, a top-quality striker in the way that City need one if Guerra goes down. They're very hard to find, though. I think there was talk of a very late bid for Cavani, but, or a, a late inquiry for Cavani, but the £16 million was too much. And again, like with Marquinhos, it would have taken longer than one day to get the... the the contract signed so I think Wenger will only spend money if the player will hugely improve the squad or if he thinks there's enough talent there that he can mould them like a Walcott like an Oxley Chamberlain Um, I there seems to be lots of kind of angry Arsenal fans that they're not spending money but to be honest if the talent isn't there and you're going to take risks the way Manchester United did on Martial it might pay off but if it doesn't pay off that the 35 million pounds down the drain I don't, I don't mind Arvenger not spending the money if if the players just aren't available. So just the the last thing I want to cover here in this transfer window conversation is um, the whole Berhino tweet, um, the whole between West Brom and Spurs. What did you make of that? I'm just wondering which tweet you're talking about. The one when he said he wouldn't play for the chairman anymore, or the one when he took off on the private jet today? Uh, we're going the de- deadline day with when he wouldn't play for the chairman again. Um, I suppose we'll see if he's true to his word. Apparently, he's gonna be he's gonna be fined a couple of weeks' wages for that. Um, he'll probably play. Uh, I'd imagine he'd back down, but if he believes that strongly about it, and he's gonna go on strike. Only time will tell. He's been included in their Premiership squad. I did see that. Um, I I think that was always gonna happen. Um, whether he plays for them now, like I said, is another thing. But I imagine he would. Um, he ha- he did have the same agent as Sterling. I thought he he had a bit more sense than Sterling. He actually got rid of the agent, but this is the the kind of stuff that 
I'd imagine AD Ward would encourage to try and force through a move. <laughs> you don't trust agents, no? No, not that one from what I heard. I mean, I only know he had had the two clients, Sterling and Berahino, and neither of them have been uh, model professionals in the last few months. No, it seems like the agent wants his money. Yeah, that's exactly what it sounds like. Um, I can't see West Brom. Okay. So that was a good no. round of the transfers there that have transfer deadline day. Um, we'll have a quick look at the Europa League groups that were announced. So um, I suppose just look at the Group A, quick rundown, Ajax, Celtic, Fenerbahce and Molde. Uh, can Celtic get out of that group? Not on the on the performance <laughs> they put in the qualifiers. I don't think so either, to be honest. You You'd know. imagine Ajax and Fenerbahce, um, probably Molde in third and Celtic getting a top four finish. <laughs> <laughs> Chris, what chance do you think Liverpool have in Group B? Um, I'm not sure how serious we're going to take it. it. It looks pretty serious because we've actually included Daniel Sturridge in the, the squad. Not not too happy about that. I'd like us to only use him in the league this year and make a real run at the top four. But I suppose Ruben is, is going to be a tough trip away. A long journey to Russia. Um, you'd imagine we'd beat them at home. Bordeaux can be strong. They're, they've been in and out of the Champions League. I don't know a lot about Sion, but I do know that we struggled the last time we were in Switzerland. I'd imagine if if we really wanted and we, we play a strong team, we can qualify from the group, but it just depends on how Rogers is going to prioritise this season. Indeed. And finally, looking at Group J, where Tottenham were the top seed. Do they have a chance to a tough draw? Monaco in there as a third seed. Yeah, I think Anderlecht and Monaco are... <clears throat> yeah, like Chris said, if Spurs take it seriously, I think they've definitely have the capability of getting out of that group. Monaco selling Marshall, selling Kurzawa, I think they're they're a selling club right now after after their crazy spending when they brought in Moutinho and James Rodriguez. They're now having to kind of live with it within their means with the new law means that they don't have the tax exemption in French football anymore. Um I think Anderlecht, again, I think sold two of the rest players to Newcastle and Mitrovic and Mbemba. So, like every couple of years, they have to rebuild. I think Spurs want to, they can get out of their group. The trip, the trip to Carabag will be difficult, as, as Celtic found out. But if Celtic knocked them out over two legs, they really can't be that good. So just finally, uh, for football, I'll have a quick, quick look at the European qualifiers that are coming up. Um, so... Ireland's next two games are away at Gibraltar and at home to Georgia. Can we get six points out of it? You'd think so. I mean, we're playing the, the bottom two sides in the, the group. And if we're going to have any chance of qualifying, which is fairly slim at the moment, we need six points from that. When we get that, that would put us onto 15. Um, without that, I'd say we've got no chance. And what do we want from the other games in Group D? Do we want Scotland to lose to Germany on match day eight? Yeah, I think you have to assume you want Germany to pick up full points and then hope they beat Scotland, hope they beat Poland and then we have to somehow go and get a result. One point mightn't even be enough against Germany and Ireland. So I I think third... Could, could we nick it? Scotland have to go away to Georgia? That, that's not... Not the easiest place to go, I suppose. It's not, but you're relying on Ireland winning both these games 
and picking up a win either away to Poland or home to Germany. And as pessimistic as it sounds, I can't see them getting more than a point out of those two games. True. Um, I'll just ask is out right now. There's only four games to go. Can Ireland qualify? Yes, a simple yes or no? Yes. Very optimistic there, Chris. And Stephen? No. Pessimistic over there, so... <laughs> I'm sorry. I haven't watched them so far this year. Against good teams, they just don't have enough. Which of the home nations has the best chance uh, in the Euros this year? Like, it looks like Wales are going to get there. They want tonight 1-0. England are obviously going to get there. It looks like Northern Ireland have a chance as well. Which of the home nations has the best chance of winning this? Would it be Wales or would it be England? It's definitely England. Uh, I know Wales are ranked a place ahead of them now in the, the standings, but England have the best players out of those two teams. Um, neither of them will win it as far as I'm concerned, but England will probably get to maybe the quarterfinals and then that, that'll be about it for them. Wales will, will do well if they get out of their group. Do 16 teams make it out of the group this time with 24 qualifiers? Is there a round of 16? It's, it used to be eight. I'm not sure if they've extended it. If it's eight, then it's the six group winners and the two second place. In that case, I can't see Wales getting out of their group. If it's if it's 16 teams, and they, they can easily get out of their group, and then with Gareth Bale, you never know, they could win one or two knockout games just by having him alone. But to England. Okay, very good. <laughs> um, I suppose that's enough football talk. We'll move on to rugby and the Ireland Rugby World Cup squad was announced. So, can I have your opinions? Trimble, Boss, Jones, all excluded. Dave Carney, Cave, Healy, all included. And only two scrum halves chosen as well. Apparently Madigan is covered. Give us your opinions on this. I suppose the, the big one for me was Andrew Trimble. I know he's had his his problems with injury, but he did come through a game with Ulster, and I just thought he'd be included. He was he was one if, if everyone was fit that could probably start for Ireland. So the fact that he's not there at all was a bit of a shock for me. Even though, like I said, he has had a lot of trouble with injury over the last year. Yeah, uh, apparently he's starting tomorrow for Ulster in their first Pro Twelve game. Yeah, well, he's been he's been named on the standby list. So it, the more games he can get, and you never know if someone picks up an injury, which is definitely a possibility with the, the physicality of the Rugby World Cup. He he could come in, in in good form, hopefully, and add something if needed. Yeah, no, apparently uh, Joe Schmidt said that like on Sunday he spent maybe six hours with his team looking, looking at a team and trying to pick the team to go to the World, Rugby World Cup. And for maybe half that time, Trimble was in the squad. Yeah, I think he's he's very unfortunate. Like If he, if he had a season or even half a season behind him, I think he'd have gone... Um, probably ahead of Dave Kearney but you could pick three or four players that he would have been in ahead of um, I'd just like to point out that it's it's now Irish Joe um, fitting for the man who's hopefully going to lift the World Cup in at the end of October that would be a lovely sight wouldn't it I was just trying to work out did we ever bestow the same honour on Jack Charlton I don't think so we probably should have <laughs> <laughs> He's, he's probably the equivalent of, of Joe Schmidt. The closest thing in football terms. Yeah, I, I think, like Chris was saying earlier, the with the injury trouble Trimble's had, it makes sense to give him four or five games for Ulster. And then, with the likelihood of someone being injured, 
he then arrives with six or seven games under his belt, as opposed to maybe 60 minutes against Romania and or the Canadians. I think it's 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 un, it's kind of disappointing for him in one in one regard. But if someone drops out and he's suddenly playing in the third or fourth group games, I don't think he'll mind too much. Yeah, that's a fair point. Um, would you have brought Keane Healy? Um, yeah, I, I think Healy had to come. Um, I think the fact that he's carrying an injury is is why why Furlong was picked. Um, he's he's our most he's he's so important to us, especially around the the pitch, the work he does. Um, he's not necessarily going to be needed for the first couple of group games, but then come uh, come the knockout stages, he's going to be massive for the team and our chances of progression. Yeah, that's very true. That's very true. Um, just one other point. What do you make of uh, only bringing two scrum halves and Joe saying Madigan is cover? If he feels that he needs a cover in centre because he doesn't fully trust the combinations, I can see why you do it. I, you're, you're basically you're banking on the fact that you don't get an injury to one of your scrum halves. That's a two to three week injury. And you're, and you're hoping on the fact they don't get injured the day before a game. And if one of those two things happen, then you're stuck for one game. I, it's, it is risky. I think he wouldn't have done it if he felt he had enough strength and depth at twelve and thirteen. So, I don't mind him taking risks in the same way that Australia have taken risks in their squad and Wales have taken risks in their squad. I think if you're going to win a World Cup, you have to take risks. You can't play safe, especially in a nation the size of ours. I. If it doesn't come off, he'll be lambasted for it, but in Joe we trust. In Joe we trust, eh? <laughs> um, speaking of Wales, Ireland v Wales last weekend, 16-10 to Wales. What do you think? I think um, Wales did a good job of spoiling the game. I don't, I, I just think the, what, the, what they, their tactics were very good. Um, they they nullified the kicking game. Um they, they, they. I would say they started slower. The first couple of minutes, I thought Ireland were the better side, but then once Wales got into the game, they they dominated the first half and they had a ten nil lead at one point. But Ireland came back strong, to level it up ten all at, at the end of the first half. Um, second half was fairly scrappy and a couple of penalties. Wales got back ahead. Um, they had to hang on at the end, but they showed they have they've got the defense to do it. Um, I wouldn't be too worried about the the outcome of the match. I think it just gives us things to work on and hopefully it'll have the team refocused for the game against England at the weekend. Speaking of England, is it, is it a big game for both teams since they're both coming off losses? I think from an Ireland point of view, it's not as big a game. I think because we have the first two group games against the Canadians and against the Romanians, we can afford to start slowly. I think England being in their group with Australia, with Wales, with Fiji, they can't afford. If they go in having lost their last two games, the home pressure already, there's there's already people second-guessing Lancaster's squad, whether or not Burgess should be there, whether or not Slade should be there, whether or not Burl should be in the squad. I think a second loss for them, especially at home in a row, and they could risk the wheels coming off off their chariot. One last thing when talking about the Rugby Wales, just to the New Zealand 
the World Cup squad announcement. So, did you see the list going around of the 15 that they left out? Yeah, it was uh, very impressive. A couple of World Cup winners. The big one for me was Israel Dag. It just says it all if you can leave out a player of that quality. Yeah, uh, White Lock as well left out, isn't he, as well? Like, it's just scary some of the players that they can afford to leave out. So, moving on to a bit of ga. Dublin v Mayo last weekend, 212 to 115. What do you think of this game? There was red cards, black cards, blood, goals, penalties. And Chris, the ref was a big talking point as well. I'm sure you like that. <laughs> yeah, it's always nice when the officials are in the spotlight. <laughs> he didn't have much choice, in fairness. The players didn't give him much much option but to be in the spotlight. <laughs> what did you make of the game? It wasn't as good as people made out. I think for the first... 55 minutes, it was a decent match. I think people, because everyone needed the Dublin Mayo game to be the big spectacle of the season with a lot of games disappointing, I think people were kind of praying it would live up to, to all the hype and didn't for a while. And then when Dublin, a lovely second goal to go, I think was five points up and they get two more. I think with 12 minutes to go, they're seven points up and there's no way Mayo should come back. Yeah, there's no way Mouse should come back from that. Was it a penalty? Which one? <laughs> <laughs> the one that was given? For Mayo? Yeah. Um, I think so. I think if you look at his... I, think, um, I can't remember the defender, but he sticks out his leg. And if you do that, the player will go down. There's four Dublin players descending on him. And any of them give him the opportunity to... To win a penalty when you're seven points down, you have to take it. We're giving the ref an option, as they say. I, it's not even that. It's just he fell them. It, it, it's simple as that. I, I'd say, as Chris sent out a good tweet there just after the game, I'd say gee, the guy headquarters were happy with the result anyway. Yeah, definitely. Um, the GAA love any time Dublin have a replay. It just means they're going to sell out Crow Park. Another 82-plus thousand yeah, Fans. yeah, yeah. Stephen, you were saying that you you felt it should be somewhere else the game. Well, it's. I think I can understand from the GA point of view if you have your semi final of your championships in an eighty two thousand seater or eighty two thousand stadium capacity, then you should have it there. But for Mayo to have to come all the way down and their fans come all the way down, play in what is essentially Dublin's home ground. I know people can say it's it's Parnell Park, but Realistically, Croke Park is up on home ground. You go, you come back for seven points, you force a replay, you then have to come back down all the way to Dublin to play Dublin in their home ground again in the semi-final. I, re- I think they should have used what happened last year, I think it was last year with the early semi-final, where with the replay on the same weekend as the football final, or sorry, well, it was the American football game, they moved it to Turles. And it gives... Give the team who aren't Dublin a fighting chance because I think the money will always win out in the same way it does in every sport. But from a sporting point of view, Mayo should have a chance to bring Dublin back somewhere neutral at least. They should uh, build an 82,000 seater stadium then, Stephen. <laughs> Do you not think that's unfair that Mayo have to play two games in Dublin's home stadium in a row? Not particularly, no. 
if you weren't a Dublin supporter, would you think it's fair? <laughs> no, to, to be honest, I, I just think it's the only logical solution. Um, if they had another stadium like that somewhere else in the country, then fair enough. But this is this is when they make their money. There's there's no way it's going to be anywhere else other than in Crow Park. And by very right that it should be the case. Um, like I said, until there's another stadium that can do what it can do, it just doesn't make sense to have it anywhere else. And I just don't think fairness will come into the equation. So the replay this Saturday, just a simple question, who will win, Dublin or Mayo? Yeah, well, I, I just think Mayo probably had their chance last weekend. I mean, they they came back from seven down, as Stephen mentioned, and then they had a couple of chances at, right at the death to, to get a point. And I just think that was their time. Um, Dublin are the, the better team. They've got the better players, as far as I can see. Um, I'd imagine that they'll, they'll close the game out this time. They have the better players, but at, at least their best players are going to be suspended. I think that could have a huge effect. I think the red card from Connolly is it just was ridiculous. He obviously he's known for having a temper, and we won't go into the background of that in case there's some liable cases. But um, I think if you look at the two teams, it's who can learn most and who can improve most. I think Dublin can definitely improve most, but I think Mayo can learn most. I think with Dublin's, I think inability to close out a game. If it's tied again, they're going to remember what happened this time. And I, I can see Mayo pipping it by a point. Interesting. Nice predict- I'm sure we'll come back to these predictions next week. Um, Chris, do you want to talk us through UFC 191? What's coming up? Yeah, well, the UFC is back after a break last week. And they've got a, a title fight between uh, Demetrius Johnson and John Dodson. It's uh, the second time the two will fight. They went to distance in the the previous bout. Um, Johnson, the champion, winning that one. Um, I just think Dodson's probably the only man who can beat Johnson at the moment. Um, he has a knockout win over TJ Dillashaw, who's the champion in the class above they're fighting in at the moment. Uh, I think, like I said, if anyone's going to beat Johnson, it's going to be Dodson and the two just don't like each other, so I think it's going to make for a very good fight and maybe even one of them being stopped for the first time, which would be very interesting indeed. Um, then the, the co-main is two former champions rolling back the years, and Andrei Arlovsky and Frank Mir. Um, Mir on a two-fight win streak and Arlovsky on a three-fight win streak. Most likely, if if our loss wins this one, he's gonna he's gonna get the title shot. He's he's very popular, and like I said, as a former champion, if he had a four fight win streak behind him in the heavyweight division, they could sell a, a fair few amount of pay per views for the for a title fight. Next on the card, we have the the return of Anthony Rumble Johnson. It's his uh, his first fight since his um his defeat in the interim title fight with Daniel Cormier and he's fighting um, Jimmy Manoa I'd ex- expect a, a quick night for Johnson um, I think he'll have too much for Manoa who's who's definitely game but I just think Johnson's power is going to be too much for him first round knockout I would say first round stoppage first round stoppage the other the other fight really of of interest well I say of interest it's mainly Paige Van Zandt she's fighting Alex Chambers and it's just really to see if she can she's Alex Chambers is unranked 
and Paige Van Zandt's coming off a big win over Felice Herrick. And it's just really to see if she can keep the momentum going because I think everyone's expecting her to get a, a much tougher challenge in her next fight. Very good, very good. Thank you for your insights once again on the UFC, Chris. No problem. I'd just like to point out that the, the tickets for UFC Dublin are on sale tomorrow, so you'd want to get online pretty sharpish for that, that 12 o'clock sale if you're will, planning on going. Will you be getting one yourself? I'll be trying. Um, it took me three attempts before I was able to get a ticket the last time, so I'll be I'll be there and I'll, I'll keep going and hopefully I'll get lucky again. As I recall, you end up with some fantastic tickets for the last one. I do. I, th- I think, like I said, I, I got lucky. The third third set of releases, um, I'm pretty sure they, they were the VIP tickets they couldn't sell. So they cost a little bit more, but not VIP prices. And like you said, the seats were amazing. I'd take them again if they were on offer. <laughs> oh, very good. Will you be going to yourself, Stephen? Um, I don't know how much tickets are. I'll be having a look. If they're reasonable enough, I'll, I'll probably go. Yourself? Very good. Um, if I get a job, possibly <laughs> we get rid of that bit. Yeah, um, no worries. Yeah. I, I don't know. Possibly, I'll see. I, I wouldn't be as big into UFC as you guys moment, but I'm slowly getting there. I do remember probably the best card I've ever seen was out in yours, Chris, that night. Yeah, that was a, a special night for your first event. Exactly. Yeah. So it's a McGregor good McGregor Mendez. That wasn't a bad one to have at your first. <laughs> You always remember your first day. <laughs> so we're coming towards the end of the show. So we'll go back to the regular end that we do now. So we'll start, first of all, we'll look at the fantasy football. And how did everyone get on last weekend? Terribly. We'll at the, base, the basic league, just our regular league that we have in regular fantasy football. So I'll tell you, so I got 40, 42 points this week. It's the first time this season that I finished above the average. That's not good. <laughs> That's not good at all. Um, I think first below the average. Didn't have a great week at all this year or this week. Um, what did I pick up? I think I picked up 35 points possibly. Again, captain and goal scorer is just not happening. I think I might have two goals from all of my strikers combined over the first four weeks. And when it comes to defence, my Manchester United Liverpool axis in defence has crumbled slightly last <laughs> week, so there was no saving grace. But from those either how about yourself Chris yeah I mean I'd love to kind of slag Stephen but I actually did worse um, <laughs> is that possible I got 31 points no just looking up there I have 31 as well so uh, so you were lying <laughs> massaging the truth uh, I would just try and go for a bit of a, a higher points difference but I suppose that says it all when you're you're trying to lie about getting 31 <laughs> um yeah, Sterling got me a goal and Target got me a clean sheet. And I don't think any of my other players played because the points are very low. <laughs> yeah, look, I did know how you got on, Chris, because uh, looking at the head-to-head league, I was playing you this week and I finally got off the mark. So I was on the big fat zero before this week and I've now I beat you 42-31. I got my first three points, so thank you for that. No problem. Um, I just can't, can't seem to get a run of games going. I... I beat the league leaders last week and then I, I succumbed to defeat against the bottom of the table side. Just like Liverpool. <laughs> I know you... West Ham were bottom when we played them, Stephen. Um, I believe that was Sunderland. Carry on. <laughs> How did you get on the head-to-head, Stephen? Um, 
embarrassing 13 point loss to the eventual winners managed by Gary. Oh, how he's, embarrassing. He's now, he's now joined top as myself and Chris struggled in the mid table. <laughs> I'd just like to say that the fact that Gary managed to manage that team to victory while being at death's door is just an incredible achievement. <laughs> I do have to tip my hat and say fair played. Congratulations, though. He definitely deserves that victory. Um, looking at the Ultimate League then, uh, I am proud to say that I've extended my lead at the top of the leaderboard with a massive 56 points this week. Well done. You must Thank have, you. You must have played it well. <laughs> I did. Those couple of times I could find a bit of Wi-Fi, that's uh, all I did. Myself and Chris are neck and neck for the, for the second league in a row. Yeah, this game, 46 <laughs> points. Now we've quite a few differences, but I think just a, a lack of goals in both our teams is affecting us. My saving grace, I suppose, from all fantasy football was Ayu. Brought him in last week and uh, he definitely got the goal, the assist, and he was definitely the best performer across all the games this week. Yeah, for me, it was uh, Gomez in the ultimate. I had him as captain, so very much my saviour. <laughs> nice. Very good. Um, what wasn't good, though, was our bet of the week last week. Um, we aren't having much luck at these. Um, we are still to beat Newcastle, and at 4-7, to seven, they did get the win. Um, we went for Leicester to beat Bournemouth, and unfortunately, all the commanders a draw. Um, Liverpool at home to West Ham looked like a banker for us at 4-11, to 11, and uh, unfortunately, 3-0 to West Ham. Um, then the other banker at 4-11 to 11 was City to beat Watford, which they duly did. And Stoke v West Brom, Stoke to win a 10 to 11. Those two red cards certainly didn't help Stoke, and we lost that one as well. So uh, it's another poor showing from us. Um, there's actually no bet this weekend because there's no Premier League football, but we'll, we'll be back again with the bet of the week next week. Um, so moving on, have you got an answer to the question of the week? I'll remind you, the question again was, Mark Wellis holds the record for the most tries in a Rugby World Cup game when New Zealand played Japan in 1995. I want, what I want to know is, how many tries did he score in that game? I'll let you have first guess here, Stephen. Okay. Um, from vague memories, I remember it being something like 100... And, was it 137 or 140? Where New Zealand beat Japan once, so... If, the, if bear that in mind, you're talking maybe 20 something tries, I'm going to go seven. Seven. Um, I, I can tell you the score if you want, or will, it, will I wait till Chris answers? I'll it? wait till Chris answers if you don't mind. Okay. I don't mind if you give out the score, Glenn. <laughs> I do mind, it's okay. Um, I was hoping you'd go a bit lower so I could kind of go one above. <laughs> um, I'm going to say he got six. He got six. So I can tell you that the game ended 145-17 to New Zealand. And the answer was six. So congratulations, Chris. Thank you. Well done. So I guess <laughs> that's, a, that, that, that's a point for you on our little table there. Much appreciated. <laughs> um, finally, just to end the show, I'd like to hand you over to Stephen, who will uh, give you a few links to, to our other forms of media. No problem. You can contact us on Twitter at one more round pod. That's the number one, or the email one more round podcast at gmail.com. Again, the number one. You can download us on SoundCloud. 
at soundcloud.com slash one more round podcast or the archive is at archive.org slash details slash at one more round podcast. Our website is one more round podcast.wordpress.com and on Facebook is facebook.com slash one more round podcast. Excellent. Thank you very much for chatting with me tonight, guys. Um, I look forward to chatting with you next weekend. See you next week. See you next week. Take it easy. Bye bye. Get up, you son of a bitch! Making love.